Join us on June 20th for a free seminar and lunch. Dr. Michael Riley, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church of Wakefield, Michigan, will be presenting the seminar, The Use and Misuse of Transcendental Arguments in Apologetics. The seminar will consider whether the transcendental argument, considered by some to be the distinguishing mark of presuppositional apologetics, actually avoids unbelieving autonomy. Additionally, the seminar will consider how an apologist should employ the transcendental argument and counterarguments to it. The seminar will go from 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. and will include lunch. You can register for free using the link in the show notes. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and this episode we'll be discussing the Canaanite War. My guest this week is Dr. Kyle Dunham, Associate Professor of Old Testament here at DBTS. Dr. Dunham, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, when uh, people talk about the Canaanite War, actually probably more commonly in our day, people talk about the Canaanite Genocide. Uh, what, what is that? What are they talking about when they talk about the Canaanite Genocide or the Canaanite War? Yeah, so it's become common, I would say, in the last few years to specifically talk about the conquest of Canaan that the Israelites engage in in the book of Joshua as Canaanite genocide. And what they mean by that is that it was a divinely directed mandate to commit genocide against the Canaanite peoples living there. And why do people struggle with this issue. I think this is one that in our day, a lot of people would point to and say, this is this is hard for me to believe. This is the kind of thing that turns me against the Christian God. Uh, wh- why is that? Yeah, it's been called, you know, the most problematic issue in the Bible. And I think it's become exacerbated even more in our time. One of the reasons would be there's a lot of talk about justice uh, these days, um, particularly in movements such as post-colonialism, which seeks to redress uh, past abuses and deprivations. So there's a big concern on justice. There's also the concern that God would mandate what seems to be the killing of entire family units, even seemingly those who would be infants or small children. And so uh, that's difficult for people. I've had conversations with people that have essentially deconstructed over this issue. So it certainly is a big a big topic and a difficult one. Yeah. And I, I don't know for sure if this is the case, but I think some of it is we, we tend to live in a society in which violence and murder is uh, foreign to us. We don't see it often. We're not most, you know, and for most of history, people were fairly engaged in war and fighting and killing. If nothing else, you killed the food you were going to eat. Right. And now we're inoculated from it. So that you could talk to someone in their 30s who's never even seen a dead body. Right. Yeah. Um, We've definitely sanitized it. It's interesting to me that the the term genocide was not coined until the 20th century. So this is a relatively newer concept in terms of what this actually entails. Um, previous uh, centuries, millennia, probably wouldn't necessarily have had a con- uh, context for it because, like you're saying, they were so often engaged in war, saw death nearly on a daily basis. So we've been uh, somewhat um, se- sequestered in a way from the reality of death, and so that uh, probably adds to the angst people feel over it. Now, I, you mentioned a concern for justice in our day. Uh, I've I've seen people argue that, that there is no concept of just war theory in the Bible. Uh, 
curious from your perspective, is there any sense of what we, obviously not maybe exactly what we talk about in our modern conception of just war theory, but but there is, is there a sense of, of there are certain wars that are just, there are certain wars that are not just. Is that in the Old Testament? Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, recognizing that it's a bit anachronistic to say, you know, there's technically just war theory in the Old Testament that really wasn't coined until, say, the 16th and 17th centuries and kind of goes into these principles of like things like just cause, meaning you you don't go to war for just any reason. You have a, a legitimate reason, just intention. You're uh, engaging in the war in a way that is just and in keeping with international laws and treaties and then measured actions. You're not overwhelming someone with force. So if we use those principles as a criteria, I would say the the uh, thoughts or a precursor to just war principles can, in fact, be found in the Old Testament. I can think of a couple examples. So one would be uh, Jephthah in Judges 11 has a conversation where he's concerned about land rights. And so he's recognizing that certain people groups have a right to certain uh, segments of land uh, that would correspond to some of the principles of just war theory. Amos uh, condemns nations for committing excessive violence in Amos 1. Uh, Habakkuk also shows a concern that God will judge cruel nations who show excessive violence. Uh, there's uh, a story in First Kings where um, a foreign nation recognizes that uh, it's better to surrender yourself to uh, the king of Israel because they're known as a compassionate people who tend to treat prisoners of war in an ethical and just way. Uh, also, just in general, the Torah forbids what we might call a scorched earth policy. One of the interesting principles is, you know, if you're besieging a city, you're not to cut down the fruit trees because it says that the trees haven't done anything to you. In other words, I think there's there's an intention there that you're not to wantonly destroy things that are a means to sustain and enrich life. You're you're to conduct war in a way that's measured and uh, that is is wise and just. Now, what we said we're going to be really focusing in in many ways on the Canaanite War. Um, there's several conflicts in the Old Testament. There, there's battles, things like that. Is the Canaanite War different from other battles? What, why do people focus on it? And, and what makes it different if it is different? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, one of the things, I think, reasons they focus on it is because of Deuteronomy 7 and 20. Those are two chapters in which the Lord says, when you come into the land, this is what you're supposed to do. You're to uh, offer peace terms if they're outside. Otherwise, you're to uh, engage, consign them to destruction, this word that we'll probably talk about more, uh, but devoting them to destruction or putting them under the ban. So that's uh, commanded before they go into the land. So that's the cause for some to see this as perhaps what they might term an excessive use of force or violence. What I would say is when we look at wars in the Old Testament, I use a fourfold pattern to describe them. So the first kind is a primarily liberation or deliverance. And to me, that's the Exodus event. For me, uh, Yahweh war, which is my preferred term uh, over holy war, Yahweh war uh, has ground zero in the Exodus event. That's the first time that Yahweh is called a, a divine warrior in Exodus 15.3. That's primarily a war of liberation or deliverance. They're not putting the Egyptians under the ban. They're rather being protected from wholesale slaughter by the Egyptians. So God intervenes and Israel is mainly passive. The second kind is uh, conquest of divinely given territory. This is where the conquest would fall. And uh, this is more of a synergistic because uh, Israel is in fact 
engaging in military conflict, but Yahweh is with them to give them victory. But it's in keeping again with his divine allotment of land. Uh, and he's fighting on their behalf to induce panic among the Canaanites and to ultimately give them the victory. Uh, and so in this case, it's, um, you know, they're act more actively involved and yet the Lord is still with them. Now, there are a lot of other conflicts where sometimes it's a little more difficult to discern, is this a legitimate war or not? There are wars of political vengeance or expansion that seem to go beyond the purview. And then there's what I call reverse Yahweh war. That's wars of judgment when God enables Israel's enemies to essentially defeat them. Hmm. Uh, this is maybe just a little bit of an aside. But you mentioned the idea that Yahweh being a warrior, I, I think that in itself causes some people in our day to, to hesitate a little bit because they, they view war as inherently evil. And, and some of that is, is probably just the sense that people often have the idea that war only happens because of external things. They don't really realize there are some people who are evil. And then there are some people who basically you have to use force to stop them from using evil force. Right. And, and so that's why Yahweh is a warrior, that, that there is a call often for uh, the use of, of divine judgment through force against sinful people. And that's something I think that becomes pretty clear as you read through the, the scriptures that, that we might have a, a false perspective on uh, just because of naive assumptions about human nature and things like that. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you mentioned um, you know, there's different kinds of Yahweh war in the Old Testament. There, there's other events in the Old Testament too. Uh, like you mentioned the Exodus being a, a, a key kind of model. The, the flood seems to be something that, that the authors point to at different times throughout scripture as, as kind of seeing almost a paradigm for how God's judgment works. As we think about the Canaanite war, are there other things in the Old Testament that, that help frame it, help us to understand what's going on there? Yeah, I think so. I, I um, would draw a connection between the flood and what happens in Canaan. And there are about six or so connections, but I'll just mention a few. One is that there's this uh, intention to blot out evil because the land or earth has become corrupt. So in both cases, uh, God promises he's going to blot out everything that has breath. And those phrases are also used in the conquest of Canaan, that they're to blot out uh, the peoples. And uh, this is a divine judgment against them. And there's a sense in which the flood uh, is cleansing the earth of its uh, superlative evil and wickedness and recreating it in a way with Noah emerging from the ark as almost like a second Adam figure uh, who repopulates the earth. And in similar ways, I would argue that Israel's conquest of Canaan is uh, purging the land and sanctifying it for God's presence to dwell in its midst. The Canaanites were notoriously perverted people. Uh, if you look at ancient records, they basically engaged in every kind of heinous sin imaginable. Uh, and there's a sense in which I would argue God is deputizing Israel to be the instrument of judgment on the wickedness of the land that had become so polluted and saturated with evil that it had to be purged. There's uh, This is interesting to me, but as you read through uh, 
the Pentateuch, I would argue that the land is almost like a character that participates with Yahweh and the enactment of justice. That is to say, if, if Israel becomes pervasively wicked, it says the land will vomit them out. The land is participating with the Lord. It's a witness to the covenant to expunge evil from their midst. And so I would argue that, you know, if you have a problem with the conquest of Canaan, inevitably you would also have a problem with the flood because in both cases, God is sovereignly decreeing judgment and taking the life of people. Uh, and I've said this in the past, you know, when when our culture increasingly becomes more and more like the Canaanites, they start to look like the good guys. Uh, and I would argue we're sort of in that space in our day where uh, our culture has become so Canaanite in nature in terms of sexual perversion and other things that uh, they would probably be lionized today. And so they tend to be seen as victims rather than the reality is they were uh, a people notorious for just grievous evil. Can you can maybe give some specific examples of, of the kinds of evil practices that the Canaanites engaged in? Yeah. Well, um, child sacrifice would be one. So they would... Um, Typically, uh, what was called passing children through the fire, they would offer them to Baal, or in some cases, they would uh, put them on a superheated statue of uh, Molech. Uh, so they would typically engage in child sacrifice. Uh, there was likely sexual abuse of all kinds. Uh, there was incest. Um, there was homosexuality was rampant. So in Baal worship, uh, if you look carefully at the terminology used in the Old Testament, there were both male cult prostitutes, typically called dogs, and female cult prostitutes, typically called, um, sometimes the word is a holy woman, meaning she's set apart to the God. Uh, and as you came into worship, Baal, you, you would ritually engage in sexual acts, either male to male homosexually or male to female heterosexually. So there was just all kinds of perversion that was sexual in nature, as well as just a lot of uh, violence and vindictiveness. So many of the things uh, that we would consider crimes today were routinely committed. Uh, and I've read various sources that just kind of go into detail of some of the, the perversions that they were known for. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, the term devoted to destruction or, or something that's under the ban or under the curse. And, and that, that language or that, that term is used fairly often, it seems like, in connection with the Canaanite war. Uh, what exactly is that, is that word talking about? What's, what's being discussed there? Yeah, so it's a Hebrew word, harem. Uh, I wrote a journal article in the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal uh, in 2016 about this topic. So if you want more detail on that, you know, that would be a resource you could look up. I'll just generally kind of describe what's going on. So it's typically related to the fact that God as the sovereign creator has rights over a given territory or land, and he... Uh, he engages his people and uh, he legitimizes them as his agents to purify that land. It usually includes uh, eradicating and burning cities to purge them. Uh, it involves the capital punishment of the human population that's engaged in idolatry and these perversions. Uh, precious goods and articles, silver and gold, is dedicated to God and, and used to build his sanctuary. And then usually a worship site is erected. Uh, so. This happens in the Canaanite conquest uh, in its full measure only in three cities, uh, but it's likely that it happened in other cities in the Southern Campaign as well. Uh, so these were, I think, strategic areas where God was exerting his right over the land and he was purging it 
uh, so that he could dwell in it because it had been so saturated with violence and evil by the Canaanites. And that's, is that partly why God tells them to deal differently with people who are in the land versus people who are outside of the land, or is there something else going on there? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, they never commit harem against Egypt. Uh, they don't do it against uh, other nations that are outside the land. So it seems to be particularly tied to the land that God is designating for his habitation. And this is this concept is not just exclusive to Israel. It's been found in other things. Other inscriptions use this word. Uh, maybe the most notable example would be the Mesha Stele, uh, which was a ninth century uh, stele by a Moabite king where he talks about doing this on the land to sanctify it for his God. So it was a an ancient Near Eastern concept, but specifically uh, in scripture, it's it's legitimate when God actually is the sovereign creator and has the right to the land. Now, we said at the beginning, a lot of people refer to this as the Canaanite genocide. Is that accurate? Do you think this is something we would designate as genocide? Or, or is, is what's happening in the Canaanite war different than maybe what would happen from the Armenian genocide or, or, or things like that? Yeah, so when I think about genocide, I typically use the definition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which defines genocide as the deliberate and systematic extermination of an ethnic or national group. If we were to say that what happens in Canaan is genocide, then I think you have to admit two basic principles. Uh, one is that God targeted them because of their ethnicity. That is to say, he was deliberately going after them because they were Canaanite or because they were this or that people group. And secondly, that he intended or that actually happened every single uh, person within that ethnic group to be killed or slaughtered. And I would say neither of those conditions really happens in the conquest of Canaan because there are instances where uh, people are delivered. We think of uh, Rahab being a, a prime example. So uh, Rahab would have been killed under the guise of genocide if they were just concerned about slaughtering every single Canaanite just because they were Canaanite. In other words, there's a spiritual dynamic at play. Ultimately, this is also a, uh, a spiritual conflict between Yahweh, the true God, and the false gods worshipped by the these peoples. Uh, so I would argue that it's not genocide, even though um, there are many evangelicals today that would use that terminology. I think it it tends to, um, you know, it, it tends to overstate what actually is is happening. Yeah, it associates it with uh, something that we rightly, I think, look at as evil in our day, um, and it's it's tying them together when they actually are distinct from each other. Now you mentioned earlier. One of the tensions people have is, you know, when, when God's telling them to, to wipe out an entire city and to, to devote everything to destruction, that, that seems to include infants and children. And then you, you can look at the practices of the land and say, I mean, a lot of these people were very wicked and evil, but it's hard to make that same case about children or infants. And so how do we account for the, the call to, to kill even the, the young children within a, within a city? Yeah, I think this is uh, this is a challenge. So I, I admit it is a challenge, but I think a couple things to think about. Number one is family structures were much more cohesive in the ancient world than we tend to think of them today. So we sort of have an individualistic mindset in the West, uh, whereas family structures were seen as you know what happens uh, in the leadership of the family trickles down through the entire family. So that's one thing to think about. We have multiple examples of that in the. Uh, Old Testament. There's also this principle of progressive degeneration. So if you think about 
when God first announced his intention to destroy Canaan, it was actually given to Abraham in Genesis, which is essentially seven centuries before it actually took place. And over the course of those seven centuries, the Canaanites only got worse and worse and worse. So we have this principle in, in systematic theology we talk about that depravity is not static. Uh, it's it's always downwardly progressing. So I would say each successive generation gets worse and worse. And then future populations would pose a continuing threat of both hostility and apostasy for Israel. And one example, this is a little debated, but I tend to think that this probably is the case. If you uh, read the account where Saul is supposed to uh, put the Amalekites under the ban, but he fails to kill all of them and he spares Agag. And then Samuel comes in, you know, it memorably says there he hacks Agag to pieces. Uh, if you fast forward in the biblical storyline to the book of Esther, what is really interesting is Mordecai is a descendant of a guy named Kish, which I think links us in a sense to Saul. I'm not saying he's necessarily a descendant of Saul, but Saul was also the son of Kish. And Haman, who he opposes, is called an Agagite, which may suggest he's in fact a descendant of Agag. But whether or not that's the case, and again, as I said, it's debated, there is this principle that uh, if if a people group are, are not judged uh, as God dictates, then the ramifications are later on successive generations will rise up and and continue to threaten and harass and try to destroy God's people. One of the principles is just that uh, in most of these cases, it's the people declaring war on Yahweh first. That is to say, the enemies are first going after God and his people. Uh, it's not necessarily God taking the initiative, but he's being attacked by them. Yeah. Now, as you have, have wrestled with this issue, you mentioned it's, it's one in our day that that is a, is a struggle for for many people, and so maybe you're you're talking to a believer who's wrestling with this. You're, you're talking to someone who's maybe wrestling with whether or not Christianity is true, um, and maybe an unbeliever. Uh, are there one or two arguments or, or facts that that you found really helpful in, in dealing with with uh, this issue of of those who are questioning uh, whether a God who would command this kind of thing in the Old Testament uh, would be worthy of devotion or worthy of, of worship. Yeah, I would say two principles I think are important to understand and are, and are helpful in this regard. One is that we have to remember God is holy and just. We would say his, his primary or central attribute is his holiness. And that's um, something that I think is a struggle for modern Christians because we just, we, we tend to not understand what the holiness of God actually means. There's a lot of uh, talk today about justice. Uh, everybody seems to want some kind of justice. But what I often find to be the case is they don't really define what is justice or what do they mean by justice. And if you divorce justice from a standard or from a law or a legal right to justice, then it's not really justice. It's just simply a, a power play to sort of, uh, you know, get something that you want from someone else in a sense. Uh, and so when we talk about God's justice, you know, typically people want justice for against their enemies, but they want mercy for themselves. But again, it comes back to if God is a holy God and there's a standard of right and wrong, then inevitably there should be justice that's uh, dictated according to that standard. So that's the first principle, God is holy and just. The second is that God is sovereign creator. If God is the creator 
over the world and all life. He has the right both to give life and to take life. And so this goes all the way back to his uh, first acts of judgment all the way through the storyline of scripture. He has the right to all life. uh, And that's not something that we as humans have a right over. God is sovereign. And so we have to uh, acknowledge his sovereignty and submit ourselves to his uh, decrees and, and plans because we know that he is a good and gracious God. Yeah. And that, that first one, the, the fact that there is a standard of justice, I, I think is, is really important to, to, to recognize. Because if there is no God, then you have no ground really in which to say the Canaanite war was unjust. Um, because if you, if you are saying there is no God, then look at nature around us. It's extremely violent. Um, and, and without necessarily rhyme or reason. Um, and, and we don't, I, I joke, we don't put lions in jail, you know, because they wiped out a zebra population or anything like that. It's just assumed that's what they do. And yet we act as if humans should be different. And if there's no God, there's no reason to think that. And, and really what you have is you have people using the morality of scripture to say, well, God was immoral. But you can't really have it both ways. You can't both say this is the standard of morality that God has set up and therefore he's immoral in doing this action. Um, And so you're you're taking the Bible to deny the Bible. And I don't think you can ultimately do that. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Dunham. And thank you for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to share it with someone else that you think might benefit benefit from this discussion. You can find out more about Theologically Driven or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. Look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.